Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we hear from Sarah McNally, founder of the New York bookshop chain McNally Jackson. She joined the Monaco team in our Asheville Weekender event. Plus, Republic, an ad-free, independent and member-funded digital magazine from Zurich. And the memoir of the man of the world's most renowned source for anything Eurovision. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Last weekend, Monaco hosted an event in Nashville, North Carolina, and among our guests was Sarah McNally, entrepreneur and founder of independent New York bookshop chain McNally Jackson. She told our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, about her new shop at the Rockefeller Center. Rockefeller Center has a lot of symbolic value to me, as I mean, Tali and I are both from this really small city in Winnipeg, and there's moments, like when you're from like the middle of nowhere, there's moments you see a big place. Like, the first time I ever saw Toronto, I got vertigo. I was sick. <laughs> I had to like look at my lap in the back of the car because I couldn't believe the dizzying height of Toronto. So when I came to New York, it obviously blew my mind. And the first place I ever set foot in New York was Rockefeller Center, it just it was this indelible romantic moment in my life. And then Rockefeller Center being generally given over as an extension to Times Square, it left my life. I mean, I've lived in New York now since 1999, and I just didn't go to Rockefeller Center for decades of that. You know, there's a job that is not given a lot of recognition, but when done with artistry, can make the city and the world a much better place. And that is when developers hire the people who rent to retail. And there are people who do that with great art and great taste, and then there are people who just go chasing after the usual suspects. And Rockefeller Center hired a woman who's an artist, and she's brought in extraordinary downtown restaurateurs. She brought in Rough Trade, which is one of the great record stores in the world. She brought in me. When she first approached me, I said no, because my impression as a New Yorker was that Rockefeller Center was something that New Yorkers didn't go to. And I started seeing what else she was doing, and I signed. And I went in, and it's exciting being part of reclaiming Rockefeller for actual New Yorkers. And the thing that has surprised me about being there is how many of my customers from downtown, from Brooklyn, work in the neighborhood and have just, they've been essentially homeless in Midtown. They go to their office and are essentially homeless in Midtown, and increasingly they have a home. My first thought when they offered me the space was that they were losing office tenants and that they must be trying to... I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone in this room reads the newspaper and is aware that there is an enormous amount of office vacancy everywhere, but in New York particularly. And so I assumed that they were trying to fight back the tide of lost office tenants. But in fact, when I met with the COO, that wasn't the case at all. Their offices are full. They had done a study that said that Rockefeller Center had tourists. They had all the tourists they wanted. They had office workers. They had all the office workers they wanted. They didn't have New Yorkers. And there was just that had pricked their pride. I mean, it was they didn't need more money. It just bugged them <laughs> that New Yorkers weren't going there. And so they turned downtown. And a lot of my neighbors, my friend restaurateurs, moved in there. And yeah, I think it's a nice development. I hadn't even realized until I started the renovation of Rockefeller Center how close it was to Times Square. It's just two blocks away. 
I don't know. I mean, I just because they were sort of just these odd, strange tourist places I never went, but it's become a sort of different world. So now when people go to the theater in Broadway, they actually have somewhere to go for dinner. They can go for dinner at Rockefeller Center, and there's beautiful restaurants there. It's just, it's nice. It's the great love affair of my life is probably New York City, which a lot of people have insulted up here today, and that's fine. We can take it, because we're big and we're great. <laughs> but so it being the great love affair of my life, it's pretty, it's pretty wonderful being able to like, help Rockefeller Center become something kind of more beautiful and authentic again. And just a side note, I'm not sure if everyone saw this as well, but it's amazing when you look at just the sheer volume of the space that Little Nell from Aspen is opening a 100-room property as well within one of the towers at Rockefeller Center, which is, which is also going to be quite transformative. Again, you know, one of the most niche hospitality properties in the United States also, also moving there. Okay, so here you are in a city, and, and we should also disclose uh, we're both very good friends with a gentleman named James Daunt. Everyone who knows London well or anyone who's even sort of following the retail trade knows that James, of course, is the name behind one of the great independents. But also, in, in, curiously, in London and in the UK, there are many Daunt bookstores. And I always thought this is just is one of the, the most clever things that I think as a retailer that, that he's done is that... I never realized, even after being in London for a decade, that there was more than one Daunt bookstore. Because the magic is, is that you know, he would go and spend the money on the bookmarks, and it wouldn't be listing all of the other outlets. It just had the one where you bought the book. So that shop felt, feels so special to you. But now, of course, Don has behind many other names. He's been transforming Waterstones. He now has the not insignificant task of dealing with Barnes & Noble in this country as well. We've been talking a lot about artisanship and small craft. You have your own imprint as well. Is the business evolving for the better with smaller players, a sense of sensitivity, a sense of community that everyone has to gather together to make for a better retail, a better publishing experience, or are the hubcaps spinning off? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the story about independent bookselling has been forever that the hubcaps are coming off, and yet... If you look around most urban environments, there's not a lot of independent businesses anywhere. So I'm not sure it's really a bookstore story. It's just there's bookstore people have just had success in, I think, getting that narrative out there. There are, I mean, James Daunt is an example of how there can be very successful bookstores. He also buys bookstores and doesn't put his name on them. So he's got his chain is sort of secretive. I kind of go back and forth on whether I should try and make McNally Jackson make it clear that there's a lot of them or have it just be one I'm not sure. What James does and what I also do is he lets the teams at all of his stores own the space. And he has a publishing house too, which he's not particularly involved in, and he lets the people who run it run their space. And I think that that's important. Like a bookstore as a retail venture is so easy to make a mess of because you have literally tens of thousands of things that can be in the wrong space. Like my stores are quite large. They have 60, 50 to 60,000 books in each store. And each one of them has to be in exactly the right place. And that's a lot of work. I mean, not only alphabetically, but in the section. And then once it's in the right place, it also has to be standing at right angles to whatever it's at. So with that kind of that, that details, it's at, a, it's at a centimeter level. It's not at a square foot level. And you have to put a lot of trust into the people who love and care for it. And when you're in a bookstore, I always think when you watch a really good bookseller, their hands 
my hands become less and less like this as I work less in the store, but their hands are almost like octopi. They just, they know where all the books are. They can hold an enormous number of books in the hand, and it's, it, it's a very physical relationship in the same way that, like, for a parent has that physical relationship with their child, that they just, they know every inch of the body, and they can get a pair of socks on or a shirt on. It's the same with the way that a true bookseller can handle the physicality of a space, which is overwhelming. Opening a new store or moving a store, and it becomes very obvious how many, in 60,000 books, it's a number. When you actually get those things on the floor and you have to lift them and put the, it's kind of a, it's a, it's an overwhelming physical relationship. And I think that respecting what an independent bookseller is doing. It's respecting the physicality of the doing. It's not cooking, it's not making pottery, but it is something, it's, it's a deep relationship with objects and finding their, and letting the objects, it's not even their relationship with the objects. A really great bookseller not only has a relationship with almost every book in the store in a very like real tactile spiritual way, but puts them so the books can communicate with each other in a way and they understand, like a good bookseller can put five books in, on a table and they understand how those books reverberate amongst each other. And a bad bookseller doesn't get it. They don't see it. They just don't see why one book doesn't belong there or why one book looks like a token. They don't, but a good bookseller gets almost like making a symphony of ideas that's just out of books. Thank you very much, Sarah, and I can't wait to visit the new shop. And now, a pleasure to welcome in studio Vietnamese-American journalist and broadcaster William Lee Adams. William is the founder of WeWe Blogs, the world's most followed independent Eurovision blog and YouTube channel. William also writes for the likes of Billboard, Financial Times. He stopped by a Midori house to tell me more about his beautiful memoir, Wild Dances, My Queer and Curious Journey to Eurovision. It's a funny one. When you talk about book publishing these days, so much of it is an agent approaching you with a topic. So I got a call from someone in Los Angeles who said, there needs to be a book on Eurovision. Would you like to do it? So I was like, sure, because for many years I had tried to write a book about Eurovision based on my sort of more than a decade of experience traveling across Europe, judging shows in Belarus, Poland, elsewhere. But the UK market, there's a stigma against Eurovision. And we sent off the proposal, and there were 35 rejections, one after the other over six months. You know, I was like, the book can't be that bad. But he said, don't worry, let's go to the United States where there's not a stigma. And you would think it would be more difficult to place a book in the U.S., but instead it was yes, yes, yes. It was the exact opposite. And I ended up meeting with a few editors, and in the end I went with a woman who was born in Italy, but she lives in New York now, and she told me, William, I don't want a book about Eurovision with memoir. I want a memoir with Eurovision. And it was so refreshing because she sensed the story I was too afraid to tell. She had some kind of innate understanding that what drove me to Eurovision was not the fact I was flamboyant and gay and loved pop music. She understood there was some deeper resonance. Because so often at Eurovision, reporters will say, oh, why does the American love Eurovision? And they reduce it down to sexuality. They say he's gay. He likes Madonna. Of course, he's going to love the camp. But what unfolds in the book is that I had a very dark and traumatic childhood and sort of witnessing abuse and violence and a sense of isolation, a lack of freedom. It made me crave freedom. It made me crave a life without censorship where I could live freely. And in the Eurovision singers, that's what I see. The resonance is the freedom on stage, the, the emancipated woman, the queer people getting a voice, all of that. So the book essentially has become a journey through trauma to Eurovision, how did the darkness prepare me for the light, basically? 
No, that's beautiful. And also your vision, besides that side that you were mentioning, is also quite geopolitical. I mean, so people to have this kind of stigma, I sincerely don't understand why. Oh, it's outrageous. <laughs> it's changing here in the it UK. Is. But if we go back to Terry Wogan, when he was the BBC commentator, he was really dismissive of the artist. He was upset that the UK wasn't doing well. And the reason we weren't doing well is we weren't putting the passion into it like these newly arrived Eastern countries. They were going for it. A Swedish producer once told me in the early noughties, those of us from Scandinavia didn't know what to do. We sat in our corner and watched, you know, the Eastern Europeans really bringing flavor and spice, and we had to wake up. So in any case, Terry Wogan treats the contest negatively. The public regurgitates that. The media wants to support the public, get those TV viewers to buy their papers, so they write negative articles, and it becomes a vicious cycle where you learn to make fun of Eurovision from a young age, just as people in this country learn to dismiss the weather or talk about the weather. It becomes part of the culture. Tell us, when did you actually discover Eurovision? Because I know you, you mentioned your difficult childhood and you were, you were the kind of boy that used to study a lot, right? I mean, that's why you went to Harvard as well, right? Tell us a bit more, when did you actually found about Eurovision and I presume you were like a young boy in America. What is that? Sure. So I didn't discover it till my late 20s. Mm -hmm. I had moved to London. Wow. My British boyfriend, I met him in the United States. I moved here for him. We're married now. There's a happy ending. <laughs> But he told me in 2007, he said, William, you have to come to this party with me. There's a thing called Eurovision. And I was like, is that an eye disease? It sounds painful, <laughs> you know. And I went to this party and I saw a woman from Serbia, and I knew, I could, just, I could feel that she was a lesbian, and she was of Roma descent, and she was competing against a Ukrainian drag queen wrapped in tinfoil, Verka Serduchka. And Verka had made many comments saying, Ukraine must look west, away from Russia. And on stage, Verka mispronounced the phrase Lasha Tumbai. It's not a real word, but in the song she says Lasha Tumbai, which to Ukrainians sounded like Russia goodbye. And it was this huge controversy, and Putin banned her from entering the country for a year. But in any case, On that night, what I saw was countries jumping from the page to the stage. When I was a child, one way I dealt with the violence at home was to read encyclopedias. It became my meditative exercise. A. Aardvark, A. Aardwolf, A. Aachen. I would go through countries, and I remember one night there was a severe act of violence taking place, and so I grabbed S, and I went up to my mother, who was committing said act, and I started reading to her from the South African entry. And it was this moment of power for a seven-year-old to or an eight-year-old to stand up to the person perpetrating violence. And just reading the definition of South Africa, it sounds so silly, but there's something about that, the repetition of words in an encyclopedia going around the world. And so at Eurovision, I think what it activated in me was one, that sense of power, reclaiming your space, but also discovering the world, right? It's like, I'm no longer that scared little kid. I'm an adult, I'm living in Europe, and these countries are coming to life on this stage right now. It was all these emotions, but those aren't things you can talk about in daily life. So when I meet people, I have to say, oh, I love the song, I love the beat, and that's true. But I think psychologically, there's a much deeper resonance and cleansing going on. And I, I think even the public notices that, and they, they tend to be winning songs in a way, I find. Yeah. Would you agree with me on that? Uh, the political ones? Yeah. Absolutely. I think music is born of the times, and Really good pop music reflects the times, and Ukraine is excellent at this. Look at Stefania, which won the most recent edition of the contest. Yes, they're singing about a mother named Stefania, but more broadly, they're singing about Mother Ukraine. At this time, Russia is trying to erase Ukrainian culture. The Ukrainian act was saying, no, 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 our pop culture existed long before this war, and it will exist afterwards. It became beautiful. And on the stage, at one point, you saw these sort of 
flowing shadowy figures. They were corpses. And then the artist on stage mirrored that with their body. It was just high art. You saw Stephania's eyes on the screen and her arms on the LED floor like she was cradling the artist from Ukraine. That's beautiful. And people, whether they spoke Ukrainian or not, they understood that implicitly. Talking about Ukraine, I mean, I noticed Wild Dances is the title of the Ruslana winning song in 2004, I believe. But tell us about the title. I mean, what is the catch? Why did you decide on Wild Dances? <laughs> so initially, I was thinking Europe, Eurovision, it's a song and dance. You know, it's the politics. Everything's mm. a show. But then I was thinking about my childhood when the book sort of changed in my mind. And sort of the central theme throughout my book is my relationship with my severely disabled brother. He became ill during the Vietnam War, so lost the use of his limbs. And mentally, he was three his entire life, even though when he passed away, he was in his 50s. So from an early age, I was taking care of someone 13 years older than me, changing his diaper, emptying his urinal, taking him to the toilet. And we were poor. He did not have proper care. He laid on the floor all day with a plastic bottle between his legs. And so to entertain him, I would dance wildly on the fireplace. And my mother would always say, you don't dance so wild. Why, why you do that? You break my vase. But like dancing wildly was sort of the way I conveyed my love for him because he didn't have a grasp of language necessarily, but he understood my movements. And so wild dance is in a sense a play on words because yes, I end up at Eurovision partly because of these wild dances, mm -hmm. but also just... It's a remembrance to my brother who died while I was writing the book. So three months before the manuscript was due, he died, and I had to start over. And it completely recast the entire thing. Wow. You're making me emotional here, Lillian. <laughs> well, and, and talking about you making me emotional, you know, as I said, we spoke many times about who are the favorites, who are the open runners. But this is an incredibly personal book. Was it difficult for you? Because, you know, I didn't know. I know you for a few years now, but I didn't know that side of your family and, you know, everything that happened in your childhood as well. Yeah, it wasn't easy. Um, I think the book became an exercise of therapy. Like, I've been through many years of therapy, but in writing the book, I was forced to lay everything out next to each other. And when you do that, you suddenly have context for why good people can do bad things when they're put in difficult situations. And it was horrible to relive these things every day on my own in the library, but by the end of it, I felt so much lighter because the anger, I, I thought I had cleared all the anger, but the anger remains. But when you give people context, everyone's better, right? You just have to be empathetic, even to the people who hurt you. And I think through writing this, in the end, it was worth it. But during, my goodness, I had some moments, Fernando. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, and, and William, of course, we're talking here a few days before you had to Liverpool. Are you excited this year? I mean, every year is exciting, but I think this year, you know, it's particularly exciting with this kind of UK and Ukraine sharing the contest. What's your vibe at the moment? Yeah, it is exciting because it's in the United Kingdom, right? So normally you and I have to travel abroad. Yeah. <laughs> it's much more of a hoo-ha, got to get the hotel, got to get there. <laughs> now it's like we're taking a train in our own country. Not easy to get a hotel in Liverpool, <laughs> I have to say. Oh, yeah, and very expensive. I was it's shocked. Very expensive. Absolutely shocked. <laughs> but there's this real buzz. I was just there. And I think Liverpudlians value the chance to host Eurovision so much more than, say, London would have or another big city because um, mm. they appreciate that they don't always get these major events. And with Eurovision, they're getting the event. You know, King Charles was there today unveiling the stage. Everyone's getting involved at every level, you know, from ticket holders to royalty. And you feel that love in the city. It sounds so cheesy, but it's so true. You know, the Granite City, all these stone buildings, but there's rainbow hearts everywhere now. You see the city coming to life. 
In terms of the acts, we've got some great music at the top. It's, you know, Finland. Cha cha cha. I love Finland. Ah. I love Finland. It makes me happy. It's a grower. The first time I heard it, was like, oh, what's that? I love it. You're so right. Because the yeah. first time it's aggressive almost. You're mm. like, why is this man yelling at me? Mm. But then you realize he's drinking that pina colada halfway through the song and he's yeah. good to go. <laughs> and then it's like smooth and fun. Yes, we needed the pina colada. A- any others? I mean, a lot of people are talking about Spain. You know, I think it's quite a decent song. Very beautiful. The flamenco kind of influence there as well. Yeah, it's so different for Eurovision, right? Mm. We think of pop music, but this is very traditional. Mm. A lullaby from, I think, Alicante. You know, this her grandmother used to sing to her about the moon, the moon as a sign of death and life, the tides. It's very deep. I don't speak Spanish, but I feel spiritual when she sings. And um, I think this is a dark horse to win it all. The juries are going to love it. And Widen, I just want to ask about Wee Blogs. I mean, it, it's it's incredibly popular and it's quite big. I mean, basically we report on it the whole year round because I think there are more and more Eurovision fans who want to know Eurovision news, not just around May time, right? So tell us how big is the operation, how much, because I know you have other jobs besides being an author now as well. Yeah, and you know, in the book I kind of hint at this, it breaks my back daily. I've, I I've kind of reached a point where I'm ready to move on with my life. But, you know, we have about 65 correspondents around oh. Europe. They're all volunteers, but the Moldovan blogger loves to cover Moldova. So he gets the hot tea from Chisinau before anybody else. You know, who is accused of cheating in the national final? You know, most of the stories will never see the light of day to a mainstream audience. But our niche audience who follow Eurovision every year, they remember who came 14th in the Moldovan selection in 2014 and who's back this year, right? It's that level of detail. So we have the website for daily news, breaking news, but then we also have the YouTube channel for thought, opinion, reaction. And it's really community. Ultimately, YouTube is about community. And so people get to know the different bloggers, myself, um, guests we have, and they want to see them back for the information, but also just to kind of hang out. Do you develop a relationship with some of the artists as well? I saw you spoke, you were talking to Lorraine recently. I mean, she was there about a little bit more than 10 years ago, right? Yeah, you're right. And it's so beautiful how some artists will remember your small role in their journey. I think with Weebie Blogs, mainstream media will often copy whatever stories we do or will take whatever mm. angle we put out. And then the artists and their teams are aware of that. So when I started, I'd have to wait at the back of the queue. They're like, what is this Weebie Blogs thing? You know, be ignored. But over time, you develop the relationships just like you do at a magazine, right? And then now they sort of come to us with the stories proactively or say, can you please drop this rumor so we can see how people react if we want to do it? It's an ecosystem. So songwriters, composers, artists, bureaucrats at the broadcaster, and then media, we're all connected in this giant web. Thank you very much, William, and see you in Liverpool. His book, Wild Dances, is out now, published by Astra House. And of course, this week is going to be all about Eurovision on Monaco Radio. Following a world record-breaking crowdfunding campaign in 2017, Richard Hockner created Republic, an ad-free, independent and member-funded digital magazine from Zurich. At the beginning of 2023, Republic had 28,000 paying supporters and 45 employees. Its unique business model included its members owning a large part of the magazine and its staff all on the same salary. Richard sat down with Monaco's Tom Webb at the 2023 International Journalism Festival in Perugia to talk about his magazine and panel he was moderating. 
So I was on a panel with two other member-funded media organizations. One was Zetland from Denmark and the other is Kreatreporte from Germany. The first time I came here to Perugia five years ago to this festival, I ran into Lea from Zetland, the founder and editor-in-chief, and we noticed, oh wow, we have the exactly same problems, we have the same thought process, there's so much that we can learn from each other. And it's the beauty of just like talking to, to each other. And uh, that's the biggest takeaway that I have here. can get very nerdy when, when community people talk about the things that they're really focused on and really interested in, but yeah, exchange of ideas. And the exchange of ideas was about membership in journalism. Is there anything that you've learned from coming here? I mean, we are trying to find new ways or to find ways how to sustain good quality journalism. Uh, it's a very difficult <laughs> business. It's a very rough business. And our idea is really to cooperate with communities to offer a service that is useful to them. So, for example, last night at dinner we had a really long conversation about paywalls. Because paywalls, um, no one likes paywalls, but they're a part of the news and the media business. Our paywall is very strict in some ways, but very open in other ways. Our content can be accessed by anyone that has a link to a story, for example, and then you can read the full story you want our members that pay for our journalism to be able to spread this with their friends, with whoever they want to. Yet at the same time, we also want people to, to pay for our product. So it's like a conundrum. And I think exploring questions like these together can really lead to, lead to new solutions and creative solutions. Like there are very creative ways to design paywalls, for example. So can you talk more about Republic? Republic is a member-funded and member-owned magazine based in Zurich in Switzerland. We are just over five years old. We have about 30,000 members. We publish quality journalism, but not like breaking fast news. We are a bit an antidote to this crazy, fast-paced world of media. We want to be a part of our readers' lives in providing them digested and more concentrated view onto the world. So there is this move for magazines, the world of print, for slower journalism. Are you seeing that in what your members are looking for? Well, it's certainly a niche that we found and we are happy to be in. Fast news is something that is very, uh, it's also expensive. And there's a lot of competition in that field also. And it's really hard to be on top of the current events. But it's also something that is not lacking so much. So... I think there's really a need in people to, um, yeah, to have a, a slower pace and uh, it's a service that we provide, basically. So who is your market? Who are your members? We have a very lively community that is highly engaged and also part, basically our community also owns part of the magazine, right? The community was there before we started the magazine. It's like a, a group of a bunch of people that were concerned about the developments in the media world and that said, we need to change, we need to do something about it instead of just complaining. And so we started, we pitched the idea to our community and started with the crowdfunding. It's like asked people to buy a subscription to our magazine before we started and it worked. And we found out that there is a market, that there is a demand for this. And uh, basically our community is in Switzerland. We're very Switzerland focused all across the country and... Uh, there is a lot of people within our community, maybe also uh, an interesting aspect that are really willing to 
contribute on many levels. There are people that help in events. There are people that help on our business side. They're happy to engage and to, to give their energy and resources also into the project. And what is the future for Republic? I think one thing, that, one ambition that we have is to become more relevant and more like a bigger voice so that it's the same conundrum with reach and like being anchored in a community yet also reaching wider audiences. So I think uh, we would like to be, I mean, you put a lot of work and effort into your journalism, you want people to read it also. So I think an ambition for us is to become a voice that cannot be overheard. We are still very young, we're five years old, we have reached a lot of our goals that we set ourselves, but there is a more relevance and more, like, yeah, becoming a stronger voice would be an ambition. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks, as ever, to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, email me on fpandmonaco.com. And we'll be back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or listen at monaco.com. Before we go, a little song for you. Ruslana with Wild Dances. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco and it's goodbye from me. Just